So Jesus asks that you would revive us by the power of your word. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, a while back, the Los Angeles Times reported a story of a car wreck where a woman had crashed and her car was hanging from an overpass over the freeway. And fire trucks came and cranes and hoists and all of that. It took two and a half hours to get her car off the guardrail and keep it from plunging to the freeway below. Afterwards, a reporter interviewed the fire chief who was in charge of the operation, and the chief said, yeah, it was kind of strange. The whole time we were hoisting her car off the guardrail, this woman who was trapped inside kept yelling at us, leave me alone, I can do it myself. <laughs> what? But I think that sort of sums up at least me, right? I can do it myself, leave me alone. Problem is, there are some things that we can't do ourselves. This is the last sermon in a series we've been doing about how God revives all things. And when we say revival, we don't mean tent meeting kind of revival. Those are fine, but revival is bigger than that. God revives lots of things. He revives marriages. He revives our sense of joy, revives people out of poverty. So let me ask one last time, what in your life needs to be revived? And one of the reoccurring themes we've had in this series is that revival is not something we do. God does it. Now, that doesn't mean we're passive. There are ways that we can participate, and we've talked about some of those. Things like open ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and do what he nudges us to do. Do what the Bible says will revive us. So if it's a marriage, you know, do what Scripture says about marriage or family, etc. We talked about how we have to let go of our need to do everything perfectly in order to be revived. There are things we can do to participate in God's revival, but ultimately only God really revives so then how do we capable, competent, do-it-yourself, east-siders, self-sufficient as we are, learn to lean on God more so that we can see his revival in our lives? Well, the two texts we just read, I think, show us how. Text out of Chronicles, God, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. So the first thing this text shows us is that in order to lean on God more, in order to be revived, we need to humble ourselves. Now, by humble ourselves, I don't mean humiliate ourselves. Okay, we don't need divine help to do that, most of us. You know, and I don't mean walking around feeling all guilt-ridden like some kind of a worm or something. No, humbling is simply to realize that while we can do many things, one of the things we can't do is revive what needs reviving. You know, one of the things you'll hear people say sometimes is, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's in the Bible somewhere. No, it's not. Right? Usually the somewhere is a clue. They don't know what they're talking about, right? It's not anywhere. It's bad theology, but that's a different sermon. But, but we like the saying, I think primarily because it shines a spotlight on our favorite person, which is moi, right? Self. It appeals to our pride and our vanity. This summer, a couple from our church sent me a picture of a store they saw in Montana, Montana called The Dudley. <laughs> what I especially liked, though, was the, the sign in the window which says, Cowgirl Heaven. <laughs> That's me, man. Cowgirl Heaven. Except then I looked a little closer and I realized, what a dumpy store. Look at that paint. It's all peeled. I mean, I hope that's not a metaphor for my life. <laughs> See, it is easy to think that we are all that and bag of chips when we're not. A while back, a businessman I know was leaving for a business trip, and he prayed with his wife uh, before he left. And he said, oh, Lord, please protect my wife and my family when I'm gone. And she said, thanks for the prayer, dear, but who do you think protects us when you're here? <laughs> right? 
So that, that's us. At least it's me, right? If, if something needs revived, you know, then we say, well, what are the three steps? I can do it myself. Just give me those three easy steps, pastor. Right? And this is the biggest impediment I think you and I face to being revived. We are too capable. We have achieved too much on our own. It has worked too well for us. So our instinct is to not to rely on self, but it's to rely on self rather than rely on God. But here's the thing. If we work really hard at reviving a marriage or a relationship or our faith or whatever, we'll get our version of revival, revival light, but not God's supernatural version of revival. So to humble ourselves means to make Jesus our only answer. Well, how do we do that? How do we make Jesus our only answer? Well, you know, if, if you remember back in September when we started this series, I asked you to commit to spend a little bit of time for at least five days a week between then and Thanksgiving to pray first, Jesus, show me what needs to be revived because sometimes we want to revive something that needs to stay dead. And then pray a little bit every day between September and Thanksgiving, you know, Jesus, revive this thing. That was the assignment. So how many of you did that? Don't, don't raise your hands, just feel quietly convicted in your heart. <laughs> now, it, it, you know, if it's any consolation, I don't remember saying that either, right? So apparently even my mind wanders when I preach, so you're in, you're in good company. But here is a second chance. If it's a marriage that needs revived, yes, go to counseling. That's helpful. But make Jesus your only answer. Pray together daily as a couple. Hold hands and pray together and ask Jesus to fix your marriage. If it's boredom that you face, say, Jesus, show me how I can be part of your rescue mission in my office or my neighborhood today and then keep your eyes open for the opportunities. If it's a health thing, yeah, go to the doctor, but put your faith in Jesus. The doctor can help heal you cure you, but only Jesus can heal you. And there is a difference because sometimes even though the disease isn't cured, Jesus heals us emotionally, socially, spiritually. Right? Humbling ourselves means saying, I can't do this, God. You have to do this. It's what I said a couple weeks ago. It's not just telling God how big our problems are. It's telling our problems how big God is. During one of his best basketball games ever, Michael Jordan scored 69 points in just one game. 69 points. And afterwards, a reporter was interviewing one of Jordan's teammates named Stacy King, who was a rookie that year, and King had managed to score two points that night. And he jokingly said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 71 points. <laughs> right? To humble ourselves means saying, God, I'm the rookie here. You're going to have to do the scoring. Humble ourselves. Next, fast and pray. Throughout Scripture, God's people fast often to be revived. In the passage we read out of Acts, the early Christians were fasting and praying and felt nudged to send Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries, which turned out to be an amazing thing because from there, the, the news of Jesus just exploded. Christianity grew 30% per decade for 300 years. Massive revival preceded by prayer and fasting. In fact, we believe fasting is so important here that once a month, the elders and pastors in this church once a month pray and fast for all of you, for this church, for the east side to be revived. Now, I'm just guessing using the word fasting, I may have lost almost all of you. I, I'm, I bet not one of you walked in here today saying, boy, I hope he talks about fasting. Like, I could use a good fasting sermon right before Thanksgiving. That would just be <laughs> awesome, right? But here's the thing, fasting is not a miserable experience. It wouldn't have been practiced for 4,000 years if it was. It leads to joy. It's about discovering that less really can be more. 
And it's not just a fasting from food. Other things that we can fast from, though given the ways that we use food in our culture to make ourselves feel better, fasting from food can be a good thing. Sometimes at night, my wife and I will say, man, I wish there was a, a dessert truck. You know, kind of like when you were a kid, the ice cream truck would come and there'd be this music playing and you'd go get ice cream, right? I wish there was something like that for adults. And, you know, instead of ice cream, maybe it would have chocolate torte and creme brulee. <laughs> not sure what the music would be, maybe NPR or something. I don't know, you know, all these people, right? We're not hungry in that moment. It's just food for entertainment. So fasting from food can be spiritually powerful. But there are lots of things we may need to fast from, things like self-criticism or media or email or shopping to make ourselves feel better. And fasting has three benefits, just real quick. One, it helps us experience God by creating space for God. Because when we're always busy working or watching TV or whatever, we can't hear God speaking. It's like standing on Bellevue Way trying to hear the birds chirping. They're doing it, you just can't hear it because of the traffic. God is always speaking. We just can't always hear because we're so busy, right? And fasting, fasting is a way of making space for God, especially if we couple it with prayer, as it always should be, and use the time that we would have spent eating or watching TV or whatever we're fasting from, use that to pray. And I and many other people will tell you that when you fast, you just reach this different spiritual place altogether, deeper connection with Jesus. And in the bulletin, we've given an insert to talk about how to do that more effectively. Fasting connects us to Jesus in deeper ways. Second benefit of fasting, it sets us free from the tyranny of our appetites. You know, when Jesus went into the wilderness, he fasted, and then the devil came to tempt him. And when the devil tempted him, he didn't go after Jesus' theology. He went after Jesus' appetites. Hear me on this. When the enemy wants to steal joy from your life, he'll go after your appetites. Turn these stones into bread. You need this. You want this. You better have this. When the enemy wants to steal joy from your life, he'll go after your appetites. And increasingly, as a culture, we look to our appetites to, tell, to guide us through life. If it feels good, that must be the right thing to do, right? But that just wrecks us. That's why fasting, whether it's from food or entertainment or busyness or whatever it is, is important. It breaks the power of our appetites. It's also radically counterculture because we are a culture that is glutted on everything. Media, entertainment, food, you name it. Third benefit of fasting, it revives us. Sometimes when I'm talking to someone struggling with worry and anxiety, I'll say, go on a one-month fast from news. No TV, internet, nothing. No, no news because the news is about what's wrong and it's causing you to worry. I know a lot of families who have fasted for a week or two from TV and all computer games, and at first the kids hate it, rebel against it, but then they discover the fun of playing outside or playing a board game together as a family. Fasting revives us. Humble ourselves, fast and pray. Third thing, to lean on God, turn around. The text says, if my people humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll heal their land. And wicked ways doesn't just mean the boom, you'll murder, stuff like that. It can be the daily stuff that we think we can get away with, and we really can't. You know, we think we can let our temper explode unchecked and not damage our relationships. Or pursue, you know, live to please people and not become stress cases. Lots of stuff that we think we can get away with, but we can't. And to turn simply means to say, the way I'm doing my relationships or money or whatever is not working. So I'm going to do it God's way. It's admitting that we're not on the right path. But of course, that would be the hard part, right? Admitting that we're not on the right We hate to admit that we've made a mistake. So we lie to ourselves and pretend we don't, right? 
In fact, there's a, there's a psychologist named William Backus. He says the average person tells 200 lies a day. 200 lies a day. Now, if you're like me, you're sitting there going, uh-uh, I don't, I don't lie like that. That would be number one. <laughs> to be revived, we have to admit that our way of handling money or sex or relationships is not reviving us and do it God's way instead. Humble ourselves fast, turn around, and then finally expect the unexpected. God is the one who revives, and he thinks differently than we do, which means revival will often look different than we think it should or want it to. When God wanted to revive the whole world, what did he do? He came himself in the person of Jesus and allowed himself to be crucified. Doesn't seem like a revival move. Death doesn't usually remind folks of revival. But he used that to pay the price for our sins and conquered death by rising three days later. Two weeks ago, I told you a story of a woman who'd been divorced three times and fired from two different jobs. But God used all of that to lead her to end up eventually working at a dude ranch in Montana, a thing she never thought she would do, but it's revived her. Loves it, loves the church she's found, loves the work, loves the people. Here's the thing, when she was fired twice, that did not look like the beginning of revival for her. And when she prayed, Lord, help, help, I'm sure the last thing she expected was that God would lead her to a dude ranch, right? That's the last thing she thought would revive her. How many of you grew up as a kid going, oh gosh, I hope when I grow up I can work at a dude ranch, right? Last thing she would have expected would have revived her. Revival often doesn't look the way we want it to or think it should, different than how we think it should. And if we're saying, you know what, I need that particular job or that spouse or I need this promotion or I need that situation to go away or I need this opportunity to rise in order for me to feel revived, that's idolatry. Because what we're really saying is that thing that we've defined will revive us, that's the thing that will revive us instead of God himself. And God's job is to get it for us. But real revival is the ability to have joy no matter what circumstances we face. And only God gives that. Revival looks different than we think it should. So here's the action step for this week. In your bulletin is an insert, actually two, so you can take one home. Insert about prayer and fasting. And, and on the back is a form that I'm gonna invite you to fill out in just a minute. But not yet, because I'm still preaching, okay? Just <laughs> hang on, right? Don't put your name on it, this is gonna be anonymous. But sometimes when we make a commitment, um, you know, it, it, we, we're more likely to do it than if we just hear the pastor recommend it. So in a few minutes, we're going to show a video. And as that video is running, I invite you to think and to pray, God, what do you want to revive in me and on the east side? And then write down on that card a time when you will pray and fast. It can be from food. It can be from something else like shopping or media or whatever. Write down a time that you will pray and fast for something in your personal life that needs to be revived and then for something on the east side or in our world. It can be for marriages or children and youth or, or people in poverty, whatever. Write that down and then put it in the offering plate at the end of the service as it goes by. And if you need more time to think about it, there'll be a, there'll be a basket in the back. You can stay afterwards, fill it out, drop it in the basket in the back. And we're going to do that just kind of as a commitment and an offering to God saying, this thing, God, it is too big for me. I can't revive it, so I'm surrendering it to you. Then we'll divide up those cards and send them to our prayer teams. Again, this is anonymous, no names. Folks will pray over it, and then let's watch what God does over the months and years. And would you do us a favor? When God does revive that thing, would you send us an email or an anonymous letter just telling your story? When I was doing college ministry, I worked at a church where success was measured by numbers, so I felt a lot of pressure to make that group grow. 
I wanted to impress my bosses, win their approval. Plus, you know, this was my career, right? This was how I was being measured on the job. How many? I did a lot of frantic striving. I'd compete with the other groups that were on the Stanford campus, try to win students, try to hang on to students, especially socially outgoing students who would invite other people to come to my group. You know, and I was always stressed every week, counting the house. How many, how many, how many, how many? But over the years, I gradually got a little bit better on all of that. And one key moment was there was a student that I met with every week for breakfast, you know, just to kind of mentor him and all that. And he was a key player in our ministry. Every time he'd bring four, every week, four or five different friends. Real key player. Well, one day, we were, we were meeting, and, and he said to me, he said, you know what, Scott, I was hanging out with Spud the other day. Spud was the name of another pastor of another group on campus. And the student said, yeah, Spud's a cool guy. He plays basketball with his guys in his group. Scott, you don't do that. In fact, you kind of stink at basketball. I'm like, your point? Like, what are you trying to say? And he said, you know what, I'm thinking that I'd fit better in Spud's group. Now, everything in me wanted to talk him out of it. I mean, he was a key player in my ministry. I had mentored him for a lot of time with him, right? And I, I, I wanted to say things like, really, basketball, you're that shallow? Well, then go then. We don't want shallow people in our group, right? And, you know, and then maybe move on to say, you know what, there's some theological problems in Spud's group, and let me point them out. Let me number them one by one, and then maybe finish off with something like, besides, you don't want a pastor named Spud, do you? <laughs> what kind of name is that? You can't get your theology from a guy named Spud. I just kind of felt the Holy Spirit nudge me, don't do that. So instead, I said, you know, I would love to keep you in our group, but the important thing here is that you grow in Christ, and Spud's a great guy, so if that's your next step, man, go with my blessing. Hey, I'm still here if you ever want to hang out again. I thought that was an awesome answer, a godly answer, a mature answer. He said, okay, bye, and he left. <laughs> But that prompted Spud and me to start hanging out a little bit more. And then some other campus pastors joined us. And pretty soon, we met regularly simply to pray for students, pray for the groups on campus, pray for the Stanford campus. You know, I sent more students to Spud's group if I, if I thought that he could help them better. Sometimes Spud would send students to my group. Then another pastor said to me, you know, he led a group called Athletes in Action. And he said to me, you know what, Scott, I can't teach like you teach. And these athletes need it. So here's what I think. I think we'll just run pro special programs and Bible studies for athletes, but we'll cancel our weekly meeting and send the, all our athletes to your group. And I said, we could use the help. Athletes have special issues, special concerns. You can help out with all of that. But then I said, what's this going to do to your fundraising? Because you've got to show your donors that you're getting results. And he said, oh, this will kill my fundraising. And I said, no, I'll help. I'll tell them how valuable you are. Plus, it's all one group now, right? So you can count all my students as your students. You just triple the size of your group. You're going to have a good year raising funds, right? It was radical cooperation between all of us. And my group grew and other groups grew. But more than that, it was a positive influence on the Stanford campus. Because Stanford is nothing but competition and no cooperation. Sometimes if someone knew that you were working on a certain topic in a class, they would go to the library and check out all the books on that topic just so you couldn't have them. So in that environment, the cooperation the Christian group showed inspired other students as well as the other groups on campus. Oh, and that student who left for Spud's group, he came back a couple months later and he stayed and he's now a pastor and he and I have been friends for 15 years. We all humbled ourselves and said, God, building these groups, we can't do it. You got to do it. And we held with open hands. 
And we prayed and we fasted. We fasted from fear, fasted from frantic striving, fasted from hanging on to our students, and we got the unexpected. You would not think your group would go by sending students away, but that's how it worked. So what in your life needs to be revived? Will you commit to at least one day between now and Christmas, pray and fast for that thing? Humble yourself, turn around and do things God's way and expect the unexpected. I'll close with this. Back in September, the week before we started this sermon series, I got an email from a man in our church named Sean. And Sean said that on the Jubilee service day in August, he was doing battle with a blackberry bush at a house we were helping at. And he was talking to another man who was there who was not from our church, but just heard about the day and joined in. And this other man had said that lately he'd been getting pictures in his head of God renewing the Seattle area. And one picture in particular he had pop into his head as he was driving was of this, of this giant wall of water pouring all over Bellevue. And Sean thought, well, you know, that was kind of cool, but didn't think much of it until Sean got home and there in his mailbox was our monthly publication, The Messenger, with that month's cover on it, which was that, a giant wall of water pouring over the word revive. And he didn't think that was a coincidence. He took that as yet one more sign that Jesus really is on the move in your life and on the east side to revive. Revive marriages. Revive businesses so they provide more than jobs but a place to develop people. Revive people out of poverty or addictions. Revive folks who don't know Jesus so they can know how deeply loved they are. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the God who brings dead things back to life. And he and he alone will revive. Our, the government can't revive us. Our jobs can't revive us. Our friends and our spouses can't revive us. The Dow Jones certainly can't revive us. But we don't depend on those things. Our hope is not built on the economy. Our hope is not built on the government. Our hope is not built on having the perfect job or house or whatever. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We dare not. We cannot. We will not trust the sweetest frame because they'll always let us down. We wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Jesus, as we come now to fill out these cards, we ask that you would call to mind those places in our lives and on the east side and in your world that you want revived. And then, Lord, help us to release those things to you and trust you for them. Ezekiel 37, the prophet has a vision. And in his vision, the Spirit of the Lord leads Ezekiel through a valley of dry bones. The dry bones are a metaphor for the people of Israel, a people who had so bought into the culture around them that they became brittle and lifeless. What if Ezekiel had a similar kind of vision today? What might our version of dry bones look like? It's not that these dry bones are bad. Standing alone, the objects of our society can be life-giving or life-taking. We get so used to looking to these bones for meaning and purpose rather than turning to God. We don't even realize how our freedom is shrinking. So what does it mean to be revived? It means choosing to live in the freedom 
that God's given us. The freedom that comes from Christ to live each day for his purposes. It's a freedom that opens us up to allow him to heal our wounds, our families, our marriages, our lives. The Bible says that God's eyes will be open and his ears attentive to the prayers we offer. Then he will forgive our sins and even heal our wounds if we ask him to. So are we asking for this? Or are we just observing from a distance, noticing the dry bones, but not asking for more? What if we were a people who boldly lived the freedom that God's made us for? How would that change us? How would that change those around us? To have Christ's redemption rain down on our lifeless bones. If we truly desire God's revival, then we need to ask ourselves, what are the dry bones in our life that need to be revived? And revival doesn't mean that we simply walk away forgetting about the dry bones. Revival means that God breathes life into us. Like he said to Ezekiel, I will cover you with skin and put breath in you, that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So with God, the bones are infused with life. And we walk through this world as redeemed children of God in the freedom of who we were fully made to be in Christ as we see more and more clearly the kingdom of God on earth. So Jesus, we give you our dry bones because we know that you are the God who breathes life into everything. And Lord, we are saying as a community, we can't do it ourselves. You and you alone can do the work of revival. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, fill us. Holy Spirit, revive us. And through us, revive those around us. Revive these side. Revive your world. Jesus, you are Lord and there is no other. In your name, amen.